Now I'm going to do, introduce someone to you. Gerald's already spoiled it. He probably doesn't need an introduction. His name is David. You ever heard of him? He's one of the key figures in all of Scripture and history. In just this passage, we see so many facets of who he is. David is the son of Jesse, the youngest brother, the runt, the better neighbor who would take Saul's place going back to last chapter. He's the shepherd. He's the anointed prince of Israel. We're going to see he's the musician and the armor bearer. He's the servant. He's the spirit-filled king, the warrior. He's God's king for God's people. But we're also going to see today that David was the last guy chosen on the playground. Anybody been there? <laughs> if you grew up in a community, you, you were the last guy chosen, and eventually you were the first guy chosen. Yeah. So part of what makes David such a unique character, though, is, is the depth of which we're able to get to know David. We see the historical record in First and Second Samuel and in First Kings and First Chronicles. But even more than that, in his writing of the Psalms, most of the Psalms are written by David. And in vivid detail, we see his passionate heart for God. In vivid detail, we see his, his mind, his deep spiritual understanding. And in vivid color, we see the struggles of David's. Highs which were high and his lows which were really low. And we see all that. And we can see that in our lives, can't we? Yeah. So here we see David. He serves God and he serves Israel in might and in faithfulness with his sword and his pen. And it's the dawning of a new day in Israel. In Israel's history. Saul is starting to fade it's not going to be quick or uh, quiet exit, but he's starting to fade and God is doing something new. He's doing something new. I, I want to quote an historical figure. You may or may not have heard this quote before, but have you ever heard this? I love it when a plan comes together. Who said that? H Hannibal Smith, Colonel. Yep. I love it when a plan comes together. That thought kept coming to my mind as I was working through this passage. God is working out his plan for his people. And we're going to start to see it coming together. And as we walk through this rich narrative, I'm going to be, I'm going to go ahead and give you some of the applications as we go. But point number one, let's read verses one through five of chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears, hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Let's stop there for a second. God is always working out his plans and his purposes. And our response should always be to trust and obey. Always. And Saul had been the man. He was the one that was chosen by the people. But Saul was sinful and unrepentant and disobedient and prideful and selfish. And Saul rejected God. And God rejected Saul. As his people's leader. 
So here we see God coming to the prophet Samuel and saying, it's time to anoint a new king, my chosen king. And the first thing we see is Samuel's emotional state. He's mourning. In the last verse of the last chapter, we're told that Samuel grieved over Saul. See, they had a relationship. And he's mourning Saul and his sin and its consequences. And I think he's mourning the state of Israel. But it was time for Samuel to recognize the righteous judgment of God on Samuel. And it was also time for Samuel to to embrace the reality that even though God was done with Saul, God was not done with his people. And he was not done working on behalf of his people. So the Lord told Samuel to fill up your home with oil, grab a heifer, and let's go. And Samuel said, hold on, hold on, i got a health concern. And, and, And in my mind, I'm picturing it's like a family trying to get to church. And hold on, i got a problem. Come on, what, what is it now? Come on, we got to go. Samuel says, i got a health concern. <laughs> yeah, namely King Saul is not going to like it if I'm going to try to replace him. And here's an honest conversation with God. Are you sure about this, God? Saul's pretty passionate about his kingdom and his name and his honor. And he's not too fond of me right now. We didn't end well the other day when I hacked up his, his trophy. That, that just didn't end up well. Um, are you sure? Uh, what if he figures out what I'm doing? Now, it was a legitimate concern. To get from Ramah to Bethlehem, you had to pass through Saul's hometown of Gibeah. Okay? So he had to go through Saul's hometown. And there was little chance that Samuel was going to pass through without making the six o'clock news. You know what I'm saying? It's going to be a big deal. Saul's going to know. But even when there's fear, we in faith still must obey. So God provided, God hears him and God provides for that concern. He makes some special travel arrangements. Okay. And it's interesting. Is God being deceptive here? Or is he having Samuel to be deceptive? Well, we've got to look at it in context. Saul messed up the sacrifice in chapter 14, if you remember. He was just going through the motions in a way that seemed right only to him. And it was really just an attempt to have a religious good luck charm before that battle. So he was just going through the motions. And then in chapter 15, what we saw last week. Uh, Saul disobeyed the command to destroy all the Amalekites and their animals with this lame excuse that, oh, I I saved them to to sacrifice to God. Oh, really? Okay. So that's twice he's used the worship of God in in a flippant or mocking, disrespectful way. So now, in a divinely ironic sort of way, God has Samuel to plan a proper sacrifice. Okay, and it is it a cover for God's greater plan? Yes, but it's not just a cover. Samuel does go. He didn't lie. He does go and he he does make a sacrifice. And that does also serve as the occasion for the anointing of God's chosen king of Israel. And that was appropriate. It was appropriate. So Samuel obeys. He carries out responsibility. And here's the idea. We are to obey even when we don't have the all, all the information, which, quite frankly, is all the time. Right? 
But here's the main thing I want you to see in these first three verses is God. It's God who is initiating here. God is being active. He's working on behalf of his people. There's five times in these first three verses where God says, I, I have rejected Saul. I will send you for I have provided for myself a king. I will show you what to do. Anoint for me him whom I declare to you. God is working here and God is saying, I'll provide what you need, Samuel, to do what I've called you to do. And God saying, I will provide for myself a king for my people. God always makes provision for his plan. And when I say always, I mean always. Where was Samuel going to go to anoint God's king? Look at verse 4 and 5 with me. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Bethlehem. Looking back to Genesis, we see that God's promise to Abraham was that out of his descendants, the Messiah, the promised king, would come from Judah. So where's Bethlehem? It's in Judea. God's. Got a plan and it's coming together. We also know looking past David to a time when the Messiah would be born. Where? In the city of David. Bethlehem. So you see the dots are connecting here and God's working his plan. But let me give you one more. Get this. David's great grandparents. Jesse's grandparents were Ruth and Boaz. Heard of them? Yeah. Even Ruth and Boaz. Yes, God is working. And he's working out his plan for his people. So as the Lord had said, Samuel takes a heifer and he goes to Bethlehem and that causes a big stir. Why does that cause such a big stir? Well, the elders of the city were concerned that uh, Samuel might be coming um, as Samuel the judge instead of Samuel the prophet. They're remembering what had just happened uh, in chapter 15. Okay. When when Saul was disobedient and he brought the animals that he was supposed to destroy all the Amalekites and all the animals and he brought the animals. But he also brought King Agog, King Agog, Agog, I can't say it anyway, that king. He let him live. So what did Samuel do? Well, he dispatched of him with his sword violently and. In front of Saul, it it really was a rebuke of King Saul and his decision to let him live. So they're remembering that and they're thinking, okay, uh, maybe uh, this may be an admission on their part that maybe they're not honoring God with how they're living. And here comes God's man. And we know what he did recently. Oh, yeah, yeah. Are you coming peaceably? Should we be worried? He said peaceably. It's okay. But Samuel tells them to consecrate themselves, prepare yourselves for the sacrifice, prepare yourself, dedicate your hearts for worship. And it's interesting that Samuel, Samuel himself consecrates Jesse and his sons and invites them to the sacrifice. They have to be wondering, why are we getting special treatment here? But that brings me to the second point. God's perspective. He sees the heart. And what we're going to see here is. 
We see the priority of the heart. Let's read verses 6 through 12. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on the appearance or on the height or, or of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. So God sees differently than man. The interaction between Samuel and Jesse, this probably occurred at a private meal after the public sacrifice. Uh, this seems to be a more intimate setting, and some privacy makes sense in light of Samuel's early, earlier concern about Saul, right? So in verse 6, Samuel saw Jesse's firstborn, Eliab. And he reacted the same way that he had reacted when he first laid eyes on Saul. He thought, surely the Lord's anointing stands here. Bingo, we got it. And here's Samuel. This is God's prophet, and he's making the same mistake that he made with Saul. Remember, King Saul was head and shoulders taller than all the other Israelite men. He was a big fella. He was quite impressive. And remember, the Israelites really wanted a big and bad king like everybody else. Give me a king like everybody else has a king. But here's even Samuel sizing up the next king in the same way. And Eliab, man, he, he looks the part. He looks like he's the man. And God says, no. It's not about his appearance. It's not about his stature. It's not about his height. No. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And you get the sense here that Jesse and Samuel were certain. Are, are you sure, God? Because a lot of men, he's... God says no. So now, and this is kind of comical, we have roll call. This is roll call. One commentator said this is like the Old Testament version of Cinderella for the guys. Let's see if the slipper fits. And, and see, it's, it's almost comical. Next up, we have Abinadab. He likes sunsets and early morning walks on the battlefield. You know, and nope, not God's chosen one. Okay, so Shemiah, nope, he's not the one either. Ozim, no. Nathanael, no. Radii, no. Seven sons passed before Samuel. And he said, the Lord has not chosen these. And then there's this awkward moment. Um, Samuel said, hey, Jesse, uh, are all your sons here? Did, did you forget anybody? Now, have you ever forgotten your children? Now, yes. <laughs> I wasn't going to bring it up, Ben, but I don't know how many times people have called and said, I left a child there. Do you see him? 
Actually, the tailors are guilty of doing that too. Uh, it's usually a miscommunication between parents. That's not the same thing, Ben. <laughs> this is an awkward moment here. What in the world? I, you know, come on, Jesse. Really? My paraphrase was, well, uh, uh, now that you mention it, my youngest, the smallest, he's out with the sheep in the field. Blank stare. Like, I can imagine Jesse's thinking, he's not the one. You want me to send the boys back through? Y'all smile this time. Come on. Yeah. Jesse, Jesse's not considering in the least that it could be David. And it's like Samuel has to say, well, Jesse, send somebody to go get him. He says he's in the field, but he's, go get him. And Samuel says, we're not going to sit down until he gets here. Okay. So he goes. He sends somebody to get him. You know, the reality is, you might wonder if Jesse was a little slow, but he's, it's not the reality. He's not slow. The reality was, in the eyes of man, there wasn't anything special about David. Nothing about this shepherd boy says, next king. It kind of reminds me a little bit of what's said of Jesus in Isaiah. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Talking about Jesus. And then there's the cultural aspect. The eldest son has special rights and privileges. The younger, kind of like today, you get hand-me-downs. You know, but... The, Back then, the firstborn, it was something special. But realize, it seems that out of all of Jesse's sons, David was the last one that his father thought would be king. And then it gives us a description of David. And let's talk about that for a second. He was the youngest, the smallest son. He's probably around 16 years old, still growing. Okay? He's ruddy. That means healthy. A bit athletic. He's got a rosy complexion. He's been out in the sun. He's out in the sun in the field with the sheep. But some have suggested this might imply red hair. I don't know. Same word used for Jacob's brother Esau, though. Who, if you'll remember, was an outdoorsman. Okay? A manly man. So it's not saying David is a wimp here. But it says he has beautiful eyes. What a strange thing to say about a young man. Beautiful eyes. You know, if I was just preaching verse 7, we'd talk about God sees. And how God sees. And this might be an allusion to the reality that God, that David's eyes are special. Because he has spiritual eyes to see. Beautiful eyes, handsome. At this point, it sounds like we... It sounds like we have more of a cute little fellow than a kingly figure, though. And he's a shepherd. He was doing what was probably the last job anybody else in his family wanted to do. Taking care of the sheep. But you get the sense that David embraced that. That he was a shepherd. Being a shepherd didn't require any particular skill. It wasn't a highly respected career. 
However, David took his job seriously and he was good at it and he cared for the sheep that were entrusted into his care. But David was ordinary. It's in and through, get this, it's in and through the ordinary that God delights to do the extraordinary so that he might receive all the glory due to him and him alone. You with me? God chooses to do great things through ordinary people, and you should be encouraged by that. I am. You should be. And the Lord told Samuel, he's the one, anoint him. So so Samuel anointed David in the midst of his family. And let's talk about the heart for a second. And what made David special? We see a distinction here between God's vision and ours. Verse 7 says, for the Lord sees, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see, our perspective is limited and not always right. God's perspective is unlimited and it's always absolutely right and true. Many of us are tempted to think here, you might, you might look at this and say, oh man, I'm so glad that God doesn't care about the outside. Cause man, this outside is, is killing me. I mean, you know, I don't spend enough time on the track or the gym, you know, and he doesn't care about earthly things. So my resume stinks. And you know, since, you know, the reality is few of us feel like we're a success as the world sees it. And it might be kind of freeing to know that God's not that concerned with worldly accomplishments. But then we think about, okay, what does God care about? If God cares about the state of our hearts, would most of us really be able to say that our heart conditions are better than our outward appearance? We spend a lot of time and effort on the physical and earthly things. How much time and effort and thought is given to the quality of our hearts? As one author put it, could it be that we're more concerned with the approval of others than the approval of God? God sees our hearts and he cares about us on the deepest level. And one commentator translated this verse from the Hebrew this way. Man sees according to the eyes, but the Lord sees according to the heart. Yes, God sees our hearts, but he sees them according to his heart. That is to say, God's perspective is determined by his purposes and his will. He sees with his heart according to his intentions. In Acts 13, Paul's preaching to the Jews in the synagogue in Antioch. And he, and he says, God raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. So after God's own heart, from God's perspective, what that means is a man God has set his heart on, a man of God's own choosing. God had said he was going to anoint and put in place his king. But from man's perspective, a man after God's own heart means a man who cared about what concerns God's heart, a man who cares about what God cares about, his will, his purposes, his plan. David's heart was to know God more and more. He wasn't looking to use God like Saul. He loved the Lord. What made David special? His new heart given by God. 
a heart that loved God. And before his anointing with Samuel, I believe God had already been working in and on David. If David loved God, it's because God loved him first. And I believe David, even at a young age, was a man of God who had a relationship with God. In Psalm 78, the psalmist says, God chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people. Israel, his inheritance with upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. You know how David got an upright heart? It wasn't of his own doing. That was the evidence of God working in him. And the third point, God's presence, the difference the spirit makes. Let's read verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. From that day forward. So see, here we see the most significant thing that happened that day in Bethlehem. This is the most significant thing. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon God's appointed person at key moments to equip them and Enable them and empower them to do what God had called them to do. We can look at examples from Samson to Saul, but let me use Saul as an example. In chapter 10, the spirit rushed on Saul and he prophesied. And then in chapter 11, the spirit rushed on Saul again and it caused his anger to be kindled against Israel's enemy and he raised an army. The point in these situations was that God was doing something through these men. The power came from a divine source. So David is another leader of God that is being equipped and empowered. But there's something different here. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Wow. It's not just for a moment. It's not just for a time. It's not just to empower a particular task. No. Permanently. From that day forward. Wow. God said, a king for myself. Please note, the Spirit of God is God. God gave himself to David here. And David knew it. The Lord is my shepherd. A whole lot could be said there. A lot was said yesterday in Ron's service about that. The Lord is my shepherd. But hearing that from a shepherd, knowing the shepherd knows that without the shepherd, the sheep are lost. And at some point dead. They need their shepherd. And David says, the Lord is my shepherd. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And we're going to see David's going to do that a lot. I will fear no evil for you, my shepherd, are with me. He knew God was with him. David knew that and it made all the difference in the world. But David wasn't the only one that knew that. Everyone else did too. About 15 years later, after he was a 14, 15 years later, after he was anointed by Samuel, David, at the age of 30, would take his appointed place as king. And that event is recorded in 2 Samuel 5 and 1 Chronicles 11. Both of these accounts, though, include this statement. Get this. 
David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts was with him. Why did he become greater and greater? The Lord, the God of hosts was with him. All recognize that David's greatness was owed to the Lord and his presence. David is walking so close to God that God's greatness is seen in and through David. God doing extraordinary through the ordinary. By his spirit, listen, by his spirit, God works out his purposes for his people and for his glory. Did I mention there's really only one true king? Really only one true king. So Samuel heads home, we see there. Um, next week, we're going we're gonna to head home too in a minute. But next week, we're going to finish looking at this passage. Okay? Um, but what I want you to see here is it's empty religion versus relationship. I thought about having the kids help me, but they're probably, uh, you have to wake them up probably. Um, l- this past week we did VBS and, and the passage was the greatest commandment. And Jesus was asked by a scribe in Mark 12, what is the most important command of scripture? And Jesus said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Oh, I saw one kid doing it with me. Thank you. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. And this is my summary of what he said. He said, loving God and neighbor is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus commended the scribe for his response. Entering the kingdom isn't a matter of duty. It's not a matter of matter of religious exercise. It's a matter of the heart. You shall love God. It's about a relationship. And God is not interested in empty religion. King Saul thought he could just do a sacrifice here and halfway do what God said there and check the religion box and, and we'd be good. And we saw last Sunday that. Samuel told Saul, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as in it as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. To listen to God. It's it's about worshiping God from here. It's about the heart. In Hosea 6, 6, for I desire loyalty and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. David wouldn't always obey, though. He would sin in a spectacular way. When we confronted with his sin, though, this is different. Saul, what did Saul do? He excused and he blamed others. When David was confronted with his sin, he confessed and repented of it. He recognized that his sin was first against God. And the more and that more than anything, he needed God. He knew he was nothing without God. And he cried out in Psalms 51, that psalm of repentance after his great sin. And he said, cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. He had seen and we'll see next week what it looks like when God removes his hand in Saul. David didn't want none of that. 
He knew he needed God. God's heart. God's heart was for David, but David's heart was captured by God. A love for God. Listen, a love for God is demonstrated by worship, trust and obedience. Was David special? Did he think he was special? In First Chronicles seven sixteen, you might want to write that one down. First Chronicles seven seventeen sixteen says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? Who am I? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? This was a small thing in your eyes, O God. You have, you've also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have shown me future generations, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you for honoring your servant? For you know your servant. David's saying, you know me. You know my sin. You know who I am. You know my failings and you love me and you choose me anyway. And you bless me anyway. Who am I, God? For your servant's sake, O Lord, and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness in making known all these great things. There is none like you, O Lord. There is no God besides you. David says, who am I that you brought me this for? David said, I'm a servant. David saw himself as a sheep in need of a shepherd. God had called him to be a shepherd king, but he knew he was a sheep first. You, O oh Lord, there is none like you. What we must see, what God has been trying to get the Israelites to see and to get King Saul to see, and what God wants us to see is that it's about him and his plan. He has to be the lead actor in the narrative that's playing out in the life of Israel and in your life and mine. He is. We'll see that he is at the center. That's his rightful place. God sees the heart. Listen, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God desires to give you a new heart. To save you from your sin and the, and the separation from him that sin causes. And to have a relationship with you. You must confess and turn from your sin and trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He desires to give you himself. Come to Jesus today and submit to the one true king. If you're a believer, we're called to walk in faith, trusting and obeying him every step of the way. Do you recognize the reality that you're a sheep in need of a shepherd? You're a subject in need of the one true king. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the opportunity we've had this morning to see how you were work in the life of Israel and in David's life. Lord, the reality is David was ordinary just like us. But God, you are extraordinary. Lord, there is none like you. Lord, who are we that you would look on us with your grace that you would bless us with your presence. Lord, help us to see the, the incredible grace and beauty of that reality in our lives. Lord, I pray that that would cause us to join with David in worshiping you, the only one who is worthy of our worship.
Lord, may we truly be submitted to you, the one true king. Lord, thank you for your love and grace. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.